0: as we continue our wonderful study of this wonderful book and if you don't have a bible in front of you you'll find today's text John chapter 9 on page 895 in one of the chairback bibles that should be in nearby you and what i want to do is is read this entire chapter for us this wonderful account of a man who was blind that the lord jesus gives sight And then has to now defend his experience. Let me read those 41 verses and then pray for our time and we'll begin together. So listen as the Lord does speak to you through his perfect and powerful word. And as he passed by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? That he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground. He made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went, and washed, and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud, and anointed my eyes. And said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. And they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. And so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. And the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he has been born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already, and you won't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. For we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began. Has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see your guilt, remains. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the The word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask that today that you would open the eyes of blind sinners, that we may see Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A friend once came into my office uh, bearing his computer saying, you have to watch this video. And it was a a video that was little more than what experts would call a selective attention test. Some of you, I suppose, may have seen such a video. As the video began, what you saw was a basketball court. And it was full of players. Half of the players were dressed in all white. Half of the players are dressed in all black. And then the narrator over the video says, see how many passes the white team completes. So they scatter about the court. The basketballs keep flying across. And your eyes are watching the number of passes that the team in white completes. And then the video pauses. And the narrator says, so how many passes did the white team complete? And then he says, well, the correct answer is 13. And then if you're watching, you think, oh, I got it right or I got it wrong. And the narrator continues and suddenly says, but did you notice the moonwalking bear? <laughs> and then the tape rewinds. And as you watch with new eyes, what you see is, as you were paying attention to the team in white, there's a man dressed in a bear suit moonwalking right across the court. And the researchers say the overwhelming majority of people who watched that video never saw the bear cross the court. Why? Because they're paying attention to something else. It's so often true in our life. Something is right in front of you. And you don't even notice. And that's what's happening in John's gospel once again, isn't it? Jesus, the Messiah that they had been wanting to arrive... Jesus the Messiah that they had been waiting for is there again in front of them and what do we see but yet again so many Jews people you would have expect would have seen him in fact are missing what's before their very eyes because remember this is a gospel that tells us clearly why it's written That you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him you may have eternal life. It's fair to say that John's gospel exists for you to see Jesus. And in recent chapters, what we've noticed is actually from chapter 5 forward, in many ways you could say that these chapters are giving various answers to how anyone sees Jesus. According to chapter 5, we see Jesus if we listen to Moses and what he says about God. In chapter 6, we see Jesus if we listen to the Father. According to chapter 7, we see Jesus if we do His will. Last week in chapter 8, we see Jesus if we keep His word. But what we've kept seeing is how few people actually see, especially the Jews. It's almost as though as John's writing this narrative, by this point he recognizes the, the real question isn't so much for the reader, how do we see Jesus, but how does anyone See, Jesus. And this text is going to give a very simple answer. is that the light of the world gives sight to the blind. Because that very gospel that was proclaimed in chapter 8, that's reiterated in our chapter this morning, as Jesus has announced, I am the light of the world, here is an active illustration of that truth. As a man who is in darkness, now finally sees the light. And how he sees it is nothing more than just the gracious Sovereign intervention of Jesus Christ in his life. How does anyone see Jesus? Well, he has to open your eyes if you are going to see him. And so remember where we left off. In recent chapters, Jesus has been teaching the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. His teaching, as it so often does, is troubling people. And he had troubled the religious leaders in the immediately preceding paragraphs that we noticed last week, where they had been telling Jesus, hey, you don't understand. We are children of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, that's not the reality. Actually, you're children of the devil, the murderer from the beginning, the father of lies. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he even saw it. Jesus, no doubt, frustrating them giving them some sense of exasperation. But everything erupted, exploded there at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles week. If you just glance up to verse 58 of chapter 8, Jesus said uh, in this paradigm-shaking declaration, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews knew exactly what he meant by saying that. He's saying, I am Yahweh in the flesh. I am God. So you see in verse 59, they race to find the rocks to kill Jesus. He hides, passes out from the temple, and at least as John seems to construct this narrative, as he's passing out from the temple, notice where our text begins, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. So the three things I want to show you in this passage. The first is the revelation of Christ. He sees the man born blind... The disciples see the same, and look what they ask in verse 2. Rabbi, who sinned? This man, or his parents, that he was born blind. It's so often true, isn't it, that much like the disciples of old, and disciples even today of Christ Jesus can see someone in need, and instead of immediately thinking about that person as an object and person of compassion, Who who needs mercy? That's just simply a subject for theological speculation. Who's at fault for the present condition? This man, his parents, why is he there? Not so much, what can we do about it? Uh, At this time in the Jewish culture, it was completely normal to think that present sorrows and sufferings came from particular sins. Uh, There was a a one-to-one correlation. You are suffering because you did something to deserve it. And the full witness of Scripture is sometimes that's true. But it's not always true. We've got an entire book in the Old Testament, don't we? The book of Job that says it's not always true. Job loses everything. His his counselors are increasingly frustrated with Job's language and logic because they say, Job, this is how it works. You did something to deserve the suffering. That's their entire worldview. But for readers of Job, like us today, we get chapters 1 and 2 in Job that says, well, that's not the case. And Jesus says, with this man born blind, the beggar there near the temple. Not the case. Because look at verse 3. It's not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So I trust you notice that the disciples are concerned with who is culpable for the problem. Jesus is saying, no, it's here to show you who's capable to deal with the problem. You know, in a room of this size, surely some of you have asked the question before when you've maybe faced calamity or you face some type of tragedy, why does a God who is sovereign over all things let tragedy and calamity come into the world? I mean, why is there so much evil if God is actually good? And this is one of the texts that throughout the ages, Christians have often turned to as a very simple answer. Is it exhaustive? Probably not, but it's pretty close to it actually. That God permits the evil. He he allows the calamity and the tragedy. Why? Because he's going to use it for good. That which is loss is actually gain in God's decree. That which is bad, children, is, is going to turn out good in God's providence. And sometimes, don't you think when suffering and sorrow comes into our life, part of the Problem that we can have in dealing with such suffering and sorrow is that we treat that frowning providence of God as this providential story that we can read real quickly. What I mean by that is God's providence in our life is often a very long story. There are chapters after chapters after chapters after chapters. And how true it is that it's only after reading chapters after chapters after chapters. After after chapters, years, after years, after years, maybe even decades after decades, that we can actually see how the works of God, the power of God, that the kindness of God was going to take that evil and turn it into good. That he was going to take that sorrow and use it for his glory. Jesus is saying, if you notice in the following verse, he's saying, now the time is here to do these works because soon night is going to strike. And we know later on from what he says in the... Upper Room Discourse of chapter 13 and following that that night he's referring to is his crucifixion. So consider this man there, this beggar, who seems to have been somewhat regularly begging near the temple. He's sitting there, and he hears someone begin to talk about him and his condition. What you need to understand is a condition, as John's gospel weaves its way through all things, is actually a condition of death. Because what we found out early on in the gospel, in the prologue, chapter 1, verse 4, wasn't it? That it said, Jesus is life, or the light. And that light was the life of men. Uh, John is consistently saying, to to be in the light is to be in life. To be in darkness is to be in death. And so there's this spiritual parable that John's putting before our eyes to consider this morning. Here is a man representing sinners dead in their sins. In darkness and difficulty, and they need the light of life that only comes from Christ Jesus. One of the most famous advocates in America, at least, for those that have disabilities, was a woman named Helen Keller. Uh, you might know that she was both deaf and blind. And she once actually said, I, I got so used to the silence and the darkness that surrounded me that I forgot that it had ever been different. But this man had never known different. As a beggar sitting there nearby the temple, children, he had never known the difference between red and blue, green, yellow. He had never seen the millions, the billions of expressions in nature of God's glory and majesty. He's a man in darkness, sitting there. He hears someone say, I am the light of the world. And that same gospel preacher, what does he hear him do next? Spit. And have you ever considered someone spitting into the ground below is a loud sound? It's a distinct sound. It's an unexpected sound, perhaps coming from someone who just said, I am the light of the world. I don't know if this man hears Jesus down in the dirt, mixing mud. But that's what Jesus does, the text says. Who knows why exactly he did it in this way. Perhaps it's Jesus making mud because it was in the original creation, of course, that God created man from the dirt. And Jesus now, as creator God come in the flesh, he who signals the new creation is along the way. He's going to now restore light. He's going to restore life to this man through dirt on the ground. Uh, Maybe it's because in part, at least the context seems to say this is seemingly what's frustrating the Pharisees so much as Jesus knows that the pharisaical laws at the time, these man-made traditions, said you couldn't do such of a thing, spit in the ground and make mud because you were breaking the Sabbath. And he wants to expose uh, their legalistic tendencies and again announce that he, in fact, is, is Lord of the Sabbath. But whatever the exact reason is for why Jesus used this means, he makes mud. The text says he anoints the blind man's eyes with the mud, and gives him a simple command, go and wash in a pool nearby. And you'll see what happens at the end of verse 7. He went and washed and came back seeing. It's a revelation of Christ because it's a messianic miracle. It shows us the identity. uh, The language later on in this chapter is going to again speak of this being a sign of Jesus' deity, a sign of his identity as the Son of God. But the bulk of the chapter actually is... Involved with these interviews, actually four interviews follow in the ensuing verses, which takes us to the interrogation of Christ. Because the text doesn't tell us exactly how it happened. Maybe it's after he's walking away from the pool there at Siloam that people, neighbors, it says, who knew who this man was, sees him walking upright, sees him walking clearly. He can see if things are visible. He's steering clear of maybe danger he used to run into. Whatever the reason is, they start talking to each other with him nearby, saying, isn't that the beggar that used to be blind? And as he's there, evidently standing within earshot, some people are saying, eh, Not him. That guy didn't see. Others are saying, no, that's him. And somehow he sees. And it's like he's there in the background saying, I'm the man. I see. It's me. And of course they're wondering, well, how did that happen? Look what he simply says. Verse 11. The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed. And receive my sight. It's a wonderfully simple testimony, isn't it? Because notice what he says I met Jesus, I took him at his word, my life has changed forever. And isn't that what happens for people that Jesus graciously intervenes with? I met Jesus, I took him at his word by faith. And my life has never been the same. You know, if you had time later on today, perhaps it's a good thing to do on the Lord's Day to ask someone that you don't know very well about their own testimony. Or students, perhaps someone eventually asks you to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Maybe it's going to be quite normal for many of us to hear various iterations of the same thing. And God's providence and mercy and kindness. I met Him. I listened to Him. Everything's different. Of course, they don't know what to do with such a guy. So they take him to the Pharisees, which begins the second interview. You'll notice that in verse 13. These religious leaders there in Jerusalem that so often function as more or less like the religious police of the land. And they're interested in finding out the same thing. How did this, put hap- how did this happen? And he says, verse 15, he put mud on my eyes, I washed and I see. And then they declare, verse 16, this man is not from God For he does not keep the Sabbath. They have no interest in the fact that a blind man sees. At its core, what do they have interest in? Whether saliva mixed with dirt on the ground. And whether or not that breaks a tradition that they created. So so why are they not seen? As man-made religion. Self-imposed rules and Regulations. Are getting in the way. For, for countless people today, don't you think, in our context, they don't see Jesus because of their adherence to man-made traditions, self-imposed rules and regulations, self-invented religions is really what stands in the way. And so he says in verse 17, this man is a prophet. They don't believe that he had actually been born blind because if he had been born blind, they would have to admit that a messianic miracle had happened in their midst. So the third interview that comes in this section of interrogation actually finds the Pharisees calling this man's parents to come before them because they want the man's parents, really, to say that he wasn't born blind. Because if they say he wasn't born blind, well then a miracle hasn't taken place at all. But look at what the parents end up saying, verse 20 and 21, we know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he sees now, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. And in that parenthesis in our English Bible, it tells us that they didn't want to say anything more. Although it seems clear, they knew more. Because if anyone confessed Jesus... The Jews had already said they're getting kicked out of the synagogue. Getting kicked out and excommunicated. And so for fear, they don't speak up. Perhaps there's been time in your life recently when there was a a threat of being cast out. And there was a threat of being disowned. There's a threat of being removed altogether. If you spoke of Jesus and maybe like these parents? He just shriveled a little bit. Perhaps more than a little bit. And fear from actually speaking with faith. Well, they go back in this fourth interview. You'll notice the second time, verse 24, to the man. And they say, give glory to God. We know he's a sinner. And one commentator, I think, wisely says on this part of the passage, it takes some ingenuity to run a trial when you start with a predetermined verdict and all the evidence is against you. We know he's a sinner. Admit it. And this beggar gets ever braver. That's what's so stunning about it. Look at verse 27. He says, I told you already. And you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become one of his disciples? A few things that go, the religious leaders in Jerusalem like that, suggesting that their discipleship is actually misplaced, because you see that, again, they reiterate, we're Moses' disciples. Surely it had a tone of self-righteousness. And then the beggar, turned ever braver, preaches logic to them with a simple syllogism. Look at verse 30 through 33. Why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the beginning of the world has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So students notice the simple logic, that simple syllogism. God doesn't listen to sinners. So that's premise one. Premise two, God listened to this man. Conclusion, therefore, he's not a sinner. Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? You religious leaders, we know it. You agree with me, God doesn't listen to sinners. I was blind, I can see, God listened to him. There's no way he's a sinner. This man is from God. And what you see actually in this passage is, is these kind of very opposed trajectories that are happening with the Pharisees and this beggar. Because as the text is going, he's advancing in his knowledge of Jesus. Things are getting brighter, And brighter and brighter. Because what he first says is, well, this man called Jesus told me to do something. Then he goes on and says, well, he is a prophet. And by the end of his interaction with these men, what is he saying? He's from God. Yet, the Pharisees, these Jews, and their blindness are descending only ever further in darkness. And those are the ordinary, and frankly, the only two trajectories that even can exist in this world. Such as the extent of their blindness, look at what they say to him, in verse: 34: "You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? So they cast him out. It's rather ironic, actually, if you have eyes to see in verse 34, that they seem to admit, finally, at long last, what everyone knew was true. He was born blind. That's what they mean when they're saying you were born in utter sin. In other words, we don't care. A messianic miracle has taken place. You don't get to teach us. So they excommunicate him. And the interrogation about Christ ends. Which gets to the last part of the passage, which is the confirmation by Christ. Yeah, I, I spend, I suppose, countless hours every single week uh, listening to film soundtracks when I'm running, when I'm driving, when I'm reading, writing, working on sermons, even eating at home, there's often soundtracks that uh, are playing around the house or in my ears. And uh, one of my favorite soundtrack themes comes from a movie, and that's about this passenger on a plane, and the plane goes down over the Pacific, and he's cast away to this desert island for years and years. And it's got this lovely theme in that movie, the the main theme. But it never shows up until the very end of the movie because almost the entirety of the movie has no music whatsoever because it's meant to underscore his sense of isolation. It's meant to underscore his his sense of desperation there as as a castaway. And if you had found this beggar being cast out, surely there was no real soundtrack going on in his life in that moment. Certainly, I don't think he would have felt it in his soul. Here he is being cast out. He's being excommunicated. Uh, What's next for him? But Jesus finds him. And look at what he says in verse 35. Simply, do you believe in the Son of Man? What a good question that the Lord is even asking you today. So simple and so significant. Do you believe in the Son of Man? You know, children, this, this language, this title of the Son of Man, it was Jesus' favorite way to speak about himself. In the Gospels, it's got this rich Old Testament history in the background, and there are many things you can say about Jesus as the Son of Man. Uh, but surely, in the immediate context here in John chapter 9, Jesus as the Son of Man means two principal things. Because as the Old Testament clearly preaches, the Son of Man would be a life-giver, one. The Son of Man, two, would be a judge, And here he is, giving life to this man that was in darkness, bringing light into him. And of course, the man says, well, who is he? Verse 36, that I may believe in him. Jesus says, well, you've seen him. That's the one speaking to you. And the man says, yes, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And it's a beautiful pattern of discipleship, isn't it? It's not only this kind of increasing knowledge of Jesus, where you know a little bit, then you know more. And you, you keep advancing in what you understand to be true about him. But there is this resolute confidence and faithfulness to stand for Christ when no one's standing with you. Even your parents. To speak of Jesus when he's not there and all the powers are against you. To obey him and take him at his word. When everyone's ready to revile you. Lord, I believe. And he worshipped. Jesus is the life giver. But he's also the judge. Because you notice what he goes on to say. Verse 39. For judgment I came into this world. That those who do not see my face. I'm sorry. That those who do not see may see. And those who may see become blind. The Pharisees, again, they're lurking. It's kind of interesting the way this passage goes. It seems like everybody's talking about a particular subject, but that subject is just there in earshot. And Jesus is clearly speaking about the Pharisees, so they ask in verse 40, well, are we actually blind? I mean, this is an affront to their confidence in their obedience. This is an affront to what they hold to be altogether true and dear. What do you mean, we of all people? The lights of Israel are blind. And doesn't Jesus say in another gospel, actually probably around this time in the course of things, that they're nothing more than blind guides. So he says in verse 41, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So this is the son of man's verdict of judgment, isn't it? You are guilty. What he's saying, though, is nothing more than the only qualification for receiving the sight that the Savior can graciously and sovereignly give to the blind is to admit you're blind and that you need his light. But if you think you see, if you think you have the self-sufficient light to deal with the issue, your guilt still Remains. Maybe you sit in here today hearing that and the spirits poking and prodding you to realize your guilt still remains because you've never completely confessed that you are utterly helpless and hopeless apart from the light of the world giving you sight. One of our family traditions. And the Stone household belongs to a particular series of books. These are actually soundtracks. Eventually the books became movies. And the soundtracks play all the time in our house when the kids are younger. And they ask, you know, when can we read those books? And we say, when you turn 13 years old, you're allowed to read those books. It's a totally arbitrary age. But nevertheless, when you turn 13, you get to read those books. And our oldest, Hudson Mark, a few weeks ago, became a 13-year-old. So we've begun to read these books. Actually, we, we listen to the books with them because the narrator of the audiobooks is, is rather spectacular in just his performance of, of the story. and uh, The way these stories go early on in the series is Hudson was very much interested, Hudson was, in, in hearing about these stories of this magical game where the protagonist plays a very particular role. And it's simply the seeker as who he is. And in the Gospels that are in the New Testament, we find the protagonist of all history, Jesus Christ, has a very particular role. Seeking people. Now, what I want to show you, because it's so often true, I think, in this passage, that we can so focus on the blind man who now sees, that we can miss the light of the world that gave him sight. And I want to show you two things here at the end about Jesus, this one who seeks sinners. The first of which is Jesus sees Jesus sees, because you'll notice actually how it really kind of bookends the passage. Look again at verse 1. As he passed by, what? He saw a man blind from birth. And then, the man blind from birth, healed according to Christ's power and gracious initiative, is cast out, and look what happens again in verse 35. Jesus heard they had cast him out, and having found him, so he's seeing him, he's, he's seeking him, he's searching for him. He's a savior who indeed came into the world to seek and to save the lost. And the reason I want you to be encouraged by that is because you could sit in here today, you can come perhaps into a church like this and for the last week, maybe the last month, some of you might even say, for a lot longer than that. Uh, you've lived in such a way that you don't think anyone sees you. You have no friends They care for you. You don't think your parents see you. Even those in the church aren't paying attention to your plight. The good news of Christ Jesus is he sees you. And surely that should be at some level for all of us a terrifying reality. He always sees you. He always hears you. He knows the degree to which you are living in darkness and delight to stay there. The Son of Man will return and He will be the judge upon that sin. But today, of course, the good news is that He sees you in your present condition of darkness, distress, and difficulty. Maybe even He sees you, you need to hear it, in your depravity. And He says, I am the light of the world. Open your eyes. So He sees and secondly, He sends Let's go back to verse 7. You, of course, don't have parentheses in the original language, but our English Bible gives, I think, the sense of it here in verse 7, when the command to the blind man is simply, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And then John says this, which means sent. And when you see a parenthesis like that, and if you know John's gospel, you should ask the question of why is he so careful and concerned to tell us what Siloam means? We've already found Jesus going to Cana, Bethsaida, Galilee, Jerusalem, all of these other places. And John has never told us once in this gospel what the place's name means. But why does he care to tell us, go to sent? I think it's because of what he's just said, actually, in the immediate context. Verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me. So many of the recent paragraphs and chapters have been at pains to tell us that Jesus is sent of God. Where are you going to go with your darkness and your death? Where would he send you? But to himself. Because he sees you. And he sends you to himself because it's only in Jesus that sinners are cleansed. That the stained are washed. It's only... And Jesus, that blind people can actually see. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that even this day, the light of your Son, Christ Jesus, would shine forth into our very hearts that we would know the mercy, that we would know the grace, the glory that belongs to him, that you would awaken sinners and call us to rise from our slumber that we might live in the light of your beloved Son, our Savior Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.